about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, It is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfection disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Hello again, friends. Good to be with you. Keep that passage open. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, how are we to talk of love without you? How are we to decide what is and what isn't? How are we to become loving? How are we to know it? If you are not present and in it and breathing. And so, Father, we pray that you would lead us into your love this evening. In the power of your Spirit. Before the face of your dear, beloved Son. We pray that you would enact your love in our lives. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, my grandfather, Brian, my mother's father, was a tall guy, big frame, beautiful round spectacles, and a full head of silver hair. Uh, but he died when I was quite young, when I was eight or so. And so the only way I really know about him is through the stories of others. And my dad, right, who married my mum, so Brian is his father-in-law, speaks about Brian in a way I've never heard him speak about anyone else. My dad's a fairly unemotional guy, and yet when he talks about Brian, there's warmth there. Uh, And for years, it it took me a while to work out how my dad felt about Brian, uh, because he told such boring stories about him. Really, really mundane, ordinary stuff. On and on and on, he told me this story about the bird bath in the front yard of Brian's house. 
Apparently, it was a massive thing, and it was heavy and big, and there was me and my sister and a few cousins running around, and he feared about that. And so one day, here's the enthralling part of the story, he cemented it in place. Like, great story, Dad. (laughs) Why are you telling me this? Um, But what my dad saw in Brian, in ordinary, mundane stories, was something much deeper. The act of cementing a birdbath in place was an act of concern for young children who could get injured. Simple acts of patience and kindness from Brian, from what I can gather, kind of shined with a deeper glow. They had a different hue. You know those people when they act and they do ordinary things and they seem to sing out in a particular way because they don't just do something they love you and the act itself is transformed by that love isn't that the kind of thing you want to see more in the people around you? isn't that the kind of thing you want to see more in your own heart I think the reality of the modern world is that we long to love but we're not quite sure how anymore George Sanders, Saunders, sorry, uh, an author in the U.S., when giving uh, a speech to, at a university, listed his greatest regret. And I'm, when I was listening to it, I'm expecting you're going to talk about some, some book you wrote and you accidentally burned sometime or you, get, you, know, you didn't take a chance on something. And then he goes on in front of this room full of university students to describe how he failed to show kindness to a girl when he was 10. He said, the things I regret are the moments when I refused kindness. Here's his diagnosis of the situation. He says, each of us is born with a series of built-in confusions. These are, we think we're central to the universe, we're separate from the universe, and we're permanent and invincible. Now, we don't really believe these things. Intellectually, we know better, but we believe them viscerally, and we live by them, and they cause us to prioritize our own needs over the needs of others. Even though what we really want in our hearts is to be less selfish, more aware of what's actually happening in the present moment, more open, more loving. His appraisal is that we long to love, but we've been snookered by ourselves and our culture into a place where we're not sure how to get our eyes off ourselves anymore and to bring those glowing moments to others. It's with that hanging in the air that we come to 1 Corinthians 13. And there's no bridal groom in front of me even. Uh, and what we see here is how it is that we can find a way to love in the modern world. Three things I want to look at in this passage. Why is love significant? How does love grow? And where does love lead? Why is it significant? How does it grow? And where does it lead? First of all, why is it so significant? And isn't that a good question to ask? Why is it that Brian glowed? Why is it that love matters in an act? Why is it that that makes it more significant? Why is it when it's absent, it doesn't seem to work as well? Paul, as he starts chapter 13, is still talking about gifts where we were last week. Those manifestations of God's glory in his people for the common good of his society. 
What's happened in the Corinthian church is that those gifts have become part of an economy of self-promotion. And they use their gifts to show their superiority over others. And so what Paul says to open chapter 13 is that really by doing that, they are emptying their acts completely. What he goes through is a list of kind of increasingly impressive religious spiritual acts. He starts with speaking in tongues, speaking with celestial uh, uh, languages, which was majestic and incredible to behold, apparently, in Corinth. But he says, if you speak in the tongues of angels but don't have love, you're just a, a resounding gong. You're a clanging cymbal. Your words mean nothing. They're empty. They're hollow. Then he ramps it up again. If you, if you can fathom mysteries, if you're incredibly intelligent, if you can speak of God clearly and beautifully, if you have a faith that moves mountains and yet you don't love, you're nothing. Or how about if you surrender your body to the flames in devotion to the Most High, or you hand all your money to the poor uh, out of imitation of, of who He is? He says, no, you have nothing if you don't have love. To Paul, love is the life of faith. And without love, faith is hollow and dead. And before God, useless. That's a strong word, don't you think? It's a heavy one. But when you start to dig into this passage a little more, you start to see how brutal it is to not have love in a community full of spiritual gifts. If you glance down to verses 4 to 7, you see this list of love things. Let me break it down for you quickly. There's two love is, love is, love is. Then there's nots, right? Not, 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 right? And then there's always, 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 always. Now, where do you think he gets the knots from? They're the Corinthians. What you have in the list of knots is the behavior that Paul knows about is happening in the Corinthian church. You see, when the Corinthians realize they can speak in tongues, they get proud about it. And those who don't have it, they get envious of the ones who do. And those who can speak are always seeking to, to show how good they are and are rude to those who kind of cut them down. Because when you're really proud about yourself, often you flare up when people try and take you down a little bit. Uh, and they keep records of the wrongs of people who, who are attacking them in their pride. And there's just this toxic atmosphere in Corinth. Now you might be looking at the list going, that's my workplace. How did Paul know? Uh, you know what it's like to live in an atmosphere where people have brilliant gifts at their feet but lack love. It's toxic and it's breaking and it breaks the people around you and it breaks your own heart and your own self. To not act in love with incredible gifts, especially spiritual ones, is to destroy the people around you rather than to be for their common good. Love is faith's life. And without it, the gifts that are used are useless, and in God's opinion, the acts are not. Love is total for Paul in its significance in the community amongst God's people. But the question that raises is, well, how do you grow love? How is it that we get unsnookered from our position that our culture places us in of self-seeking and self-regard and pride? 
Well, Paul here, I think, is actually suddenly quite clear about where love comes from. Love can't come from in us. It has to come from outside. And I think you get that from the first two words he uses. Verse 4, love is patient, love is kind. Literally, it says, love is patient, kind is love. It's kind of like a love sandwich. It's his opening definition of what love is. He's got two words he chooses, patience and kindness. I don't know what two words you would choose. I would not have thought of that. That's how far my mind is from the mind of God, apparently. But the two words that Paul uses are two words that recur through the Old Testament that refer to who God is. Uh, The first one, patience, uh, is translated uh, better, I think, by the KJV, just for the the value, uh, as love suffereth long. Love suffereth long. It's a translation of a word in the Old Testament that meant God is slow to anger. The God of the Old Testament has to put up with some people who mess him around at every single turn. And for thousands of years, he bears with them. And he doesn't throw them off the face of the earth. He is incredibly slow to anger. He suffereth long. I love the word patience when I think about it a bit more because it's so gritty, isn't it? You know, it, it refers to the reality that you know people are irritating and they cause you pain. Uh, you know, and to, to love someone is to suffer and to bear who they are despite who they may be and what they may do to you in the process. Love suffereth long. And the other word refers to, uh, I guess, you know, suffering long is kind of like this passive word. Kindness is this more active word that describes God's just lavish generosity to his people despite who they are. His constant, unending pursuit of them. His unrelenting kindness to them uh, and, and giving them all things that they need for life and living with him. It, you know, when I, I grew up with, without reading the Bible, right? I grew up away from God. And my picture of God was the complete opposite of these two terms. I thought God was angry at me and that he held out on me. I have no idea why I grew up thinking that, but that's where it was. But then I met this God, and he was slow to anger. And he was lavishly kind. I don't know where you are this evening if you've walked into church and you know nothing about God. He is those two things. If you walked into church tonight and you think God is running out of patience on you because you're too much of a screw-up and that you've done too much or gone too far, his love suffereth long. And his kindness is much more lavish than you could ever imagine. So Paul turns the eyes of the Corinthians onto the nature of the incomprehensible, unrelenting, inexhaustible ocean that is the love of the Almighty God. And as you see even just those two words and then look at the list that follows, you can see how pale our love is in comparison to God's love. God's love is broad and deep and wide in a way that ours is shallow and shaky and thin. His is robust where ours is weak. His is never ending when ours stops short. You know, the the modern view of relationships and love is basically like a contract. We almost 
unconsciously sign contracts with people where we basically say, if they do that, I'm out. And if you don't give me this, then I'm out. You know, there's kind of like short-term contextual things. Can you imagine if God treated us like that? God's love and our love are polar opposites we see here. And that's where I think verse 7 is so important, especially when we think, how does love grow? Now, verse 7, when I read it, uh, it appears very naive, right? Anyone with me on this? It, it always, love always protects, trusts, hopes, perseveres, seems naive. I think maybe there's something slightly different happening here than it appears at first. I think the word protects maybe would be better translated with the ESV as bears. Because I think bears and endures are supposed to be, this is supposed to be a little love sandwich at the end again. Another little definitional thing. Uh, protects and perseveres are similar words. They, they describe the unendingness, the, the willingness to push through no matter what that love has. That enduring quality that God's love has. But the two words in the middle are trust and hope. Or faith and hope. Paul loves to use faith, hope, and love all together. He does it right at the end. Again, these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. You see, love always trusts and hopes. The way that love grows is through faith and hope. Not in yourself, but in the only place in human flesh where this love has been seen. In the love of Christ. You see, Christ suffereth long. He bore you to the cross in all of your mess and bore your wrath. He suffered long for you in order to kindly lavish on you every spiritual blessing. He is the only enfleshed picture of this. And it's only through faith and hope in Christ that your love can grow. There is no way love can grow apart from that. It's the extent to which your heart knows how ridiculously, relentlessly, incomprehensibly is the love of God that swallows your wrath on your behalf that you will know how to love. Because there is not enough energy in your being to, to deal with the irritable people in your life or to continually give yourself out for others. But only in God's power, and in God's strength, and in Christ's love, can you do that. And if it's not part of your walk and your life to dwell and experience and know that love, then love won't grow. Drink from the brook. Trust in the love. But the second part of that is hope, isn't it? And this is where I think our last section is so important, our last question. Where does love lead? Because Paul goes on to come back to gifts a little bit. And he's very clear to say to the Corinthians that the spiritual gifts they love so much have a use-by date. They had this picture that maybe that what God was doing among them was kind of growing superheroes with superpowers. That was kind of what God was on about. And so they were very obsessed with the gifts that they had. But what Paul says is this in verse 8, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they'll be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. 
But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. All the gifts that the Corinthians have, have a use by them. They're just for this period of time between the comings of Christ, for the sake of his people, that they might know the love of Christ before the day he comes. You know, in heaven, there is no one that's going to be interested in listening to me preach. And that's not just because Augustine, Billy Graham, Spurgeon, Chrysostom, you know, all the heavies will be there and I'll be kind of like way over there and no one will care. But because no one wants to listen to anyone else preach when Jesus is over there. No one needs a prophecy or a knowledge or a word of wisdom when the glory of God fills the earth as the waters cover the sea. Who needs a partial fleeting word from a preacher when the glory of God is emblazoned on your soul. Gifts have a use-by day. And Paul describes this glorious day coming when our knowledge of God will beautifully increase, like the movement from being a child to becoming a man or a woman. He says in verse 12, Now we see but a poor reflection, as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. You think you know the love that Christ has for you. You know nothing. You think you know the power that God has. You know nothing. You know but a shadowy reflection in a mirror. And one day, you'll have the majestic honor of seeing God face to face. It says in Deuteronomy Uh, 34 verse 10 about Moses, that since then, after Moses died, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. In the history of Israel, there was one man who knew God face to face, who had an intimate knowledge of him, who, who knew God fully and who was fully known by God. And yet Paul says that every Christian is destined for an intimate future with their Lord. A deep abiding knownness a deep relationship with God. You are deeply known by God, loved by Him, secure in Him. And one day you will know that to your very bones. Now this changes what heaven is about. And Jonathan Edwards in his 14th sermon on this passage, 14th, I'm giving one, it's all good, even if it goes long, um, said that heaven is a world of love. Heaven is a world of love. Because when the knowledge of God is deep and true and transparent, the world will become one of love. You know, the other thing that I've, uh, the way I knew my grandfather Brian was through his painting. He was a very majestic artist. And he studied uh, the water at Balmoral. And he spent days and days and days studying the light as it came across the water. And what I learned from his paintings and what I learned from Brian is the way that light transforms things when it touches it. You know when you see a sunrise and the, and the sun comes up over the horizon and you watch the sun slowly creep across all everything in front of you and you see it touch part by part, part by part, and everything changes? The light changes as if the trees were now luminescent and and the water glowed and, and light transforms things when it touches it. 
And that's what happens when we come face to face with God. We are wholly transformed into what? Into the thing that God is. And God is love. And one day, touched by His glory in full knowledge of Him, we will become love. Here's what Jonathan Edwards says, that soul which only had a little spark of divine love in it in this world shall be, as it were, wholly turned into love and be like the sun, not having a spot in it, but being wholly bright, ardent flame. Heaven is a world of love. That is where the believer is headed. And you may feel in this world, in these kind of 70, 80 years of life, that you are a creature of selfishness and self-regard. But then, you know, when you, when you get to be with him and there's 100 years and 100 years and 100 years and a millennia and another millennia and another millennia, you will be a creature of love for an eternity longer than you were a creature of selfishness in this world. Because heaven is a world of love and God is love. And to know him fully is to know how to love. And in light of that hope, we are called to love now. You see, as we conclude, what my dad saw in Brian wasn't just a different man. Uh, He saw a little bit of heaven. He saw a little bit of the new world to come in the cementing of a bird bath in a front lawn. And it's that little glowing windows of love that we are called to be in this world, in this community. That is how we use the gifts we've been given. That is how we relate to ourselves as brothers and sisters. That's how we relate to the world that is around us. That we might be a little picture of the world to come because pride and rudeness and selfishness will not last because Christ has been victorious. And when his believers see him face to face, they will be wholly turned to love. Now, Father, we look at you and we see how you love and we see that we know so little. And we see how weak and frail we are and we confess in our sin that we are so turned in on ourselves. But we don't want to be anymore. And we are sorry and we're thankful that Jesus turns away the wrath from our sin. And we pray that you would help us in our hearts so know his love that we know how to be patient. And so know his love and in the power of your spirit that we might be kind as he is kind. And that in this place and in our workplace and in our streets, we would be that window into the world that you are making that beautiful reflection of us. And we pray this for you. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.